So if I put this picture up, let me turn it on. I'm sure you'll recognize who this is. And immediately, uh, many of you will already be humming along to that song, right? How does it go? Oh, come on, don't be shy. Happy, because I'm happy, right? And, um, you know, this song that has been playing on the radio for months, um, when I listen to Light FM or, you know, I shuffle around, and it's always on, and it is a very, very catchy song that stays in your head. Uh, and for those of you who have not heard it, basically the song says, you know, I'm happy, uh, nothing can bring me down, and it's a song about resilience and about... Um, being able to be happy no matter what, and it's very, very catchy. So if you ever hear it, um, it'll stick in your head for a long time. And, you know, a lot of people love this song. It's, it's very popular for a reason. Not only is it very catchy in terms of its tune, but the idea um, is, is quite attractive. This idea that nothing can bring you down. This idea that you can be happy no matter what the circumstances may be. And, you know, after you've heard the little beat and the little clapping and, you know, the song is over... You're happy. You actually do feel pretty good. Um, but, you know, a few songs later or after a car has cut you off the road or you've arrived home and um, you realize what a mess the house is in, um, you know, and, and you open the mail and there's some more bills you have to pay and car infringement notices, you know, or, you know, what have you. And then you go throughout your day and people are late or things don't work out that happiness that you felt while the song was playing quickly becomes just a memory. And I guess the question that I would like for us to examine this afternoon is, is there such thing as lasting happiness? And, you know, there's a, a line in this song that says, happiness is the truth. And, you know, when I first heard the song, I was kind of like, oh, tapping my foot along. And then when it said happiness is the truth, I thought, well, that's an interesting statement to make. Happiness is the truth. Is happiness the truth? You know, what does that mean? Um, and I probably spent way too much time thinking about thinking and analyzing the song than um, the average person. But as I was thinking about this for several um, so for several weeks, actually, I came across an article um, written in The Age uh, by Jill Stark. She's a senior editor um, and writer for The Age. And she wrote this article called, Are We Caught in a Happy Trap? Are we caught in a happy trap? I don't know if you had a chance to read it, but here's just um, a little quote of what she says in that article. She says, A growing number of psychologists and social researchers now believe that the feel-good, think-positive mindset of the modern self-help industry has backfired, creating a culture where uncomfortable emotions are seen as abnormal. And they warned that the concurrent rise of the self-esteem movement, encouraging parents to shower their children with praise, maybe creating a generation of emotionally fragile narcissists. She further writes, The more that genuine contentment eludes us, the more we seek to fill the gap with manufactured highs. But as we try to anesthetize feelings of sadness, failure, or disappointment, our rates of depression and anxiety continue to climb. So many people now think, if I'm not happy, there's something wrong with me. We seem to have forgotten that feelings are like the weather, changing all the time. It's as normal to feel unhappy as it is to have rainy days, says Rush Harris, a British-born Australian doctor and author of The Happiness Trap, in which he argues that popular wisdom on happiness is misleading and destined to make you feel miserable. Painful emotions are increasingly seen as unnatural and abnormal and refuse to accept that we can't always get what we want. 
And in this article, it's very interesting because she talks about how parents who uh, kind of raised children with this idea of, oh, it's okay, sweetie, you know, everything you do is fantastic, and you know, really try to shelter them from feeling failure. And you know those kind of movements in school to give everybody prizes, you know, after the after the race. So that kind of kind of culture of let's try to make everything about making you feel good and happy, and about avoiding disappointments.、Um, and the social scientists are saying that this kind of parenting has been very counterproductive because what they found in these、um, you know surveys and kind of following these these children. Is that because they've been raised to avoid the sense of disappointment and sadness? When they face even the slightest minor setback, they can't deal, and it actually makes them feel like a failure. When really they could have just tried again, or just kind of you know brushed it off, or、um, dealt with the fact that sometimes in life things don't go the way that you want. And because these children may grow up to be adults who are constantly seeking pleasure as well as approval,、um, they go down this downward spiral of addiction,、um, whether it's to food or to drugs or to、uh, work or whatever it may be that kind of feeds on their happiness. And this idea of happiness being a trap, I, I, I you know, I was thinking about the song, I was thinking about this article, and、um, I was thinking about how it's true that so many times. Our culture today is about happiness. It's about the pursuit of happiness. It's about、um, almost every decision we make in different areas of our lives, kind of、uh, depends on our question of does it make me happy. For example, you know, friends who will say, "Oh, I want to date this person, or I, I am dating this person, or I want to marry this person because he makes me happy." And then, of course, you know, after. A few months or years. Oh, they don't make me happy anymore, and then divorce、um, or separation, or you know, oh, I really want to buy this car because it makes me happy, right? Or I really don't want to do that because that makes me unhappy. And so, a lot of our decisions, a lot of our choices in life, it seems, kind of、uh, weighs on this balance of whether we think that is going to contribute to our happiness. And so there is this trap of this pursuit of happiness that actually, according to this article as well as according to life experiences of many people and according to the Bible, which we'll look at shortly, lead us down this pursuit that instead of getting us happy, is actually、uh, making us more miserable, as Joel Stark has stated. So the question remains: Is there such a thing as lasting happiness? Is there such a thing? And How do we achieve that, or how do we experience that? When Jesus was here on Earth, he preached、uh, many sermons, but we only have a few of them recorded. And one of them is very famous, and it's called the Sermon on the Mount.、Um, and it's found in Matthew chapter five. And I'll invite you to turn there if you have your Bibles. If not, it's on the screen as well. And in Matthew chapter five, in this、uh, famous Sermon called Sermon on the Mount because Jesus is preaching on the mountain.、Um, he starts out this sermon with what is called the Beatitudes,、um, and I'll explain in a moment、um, what that means. But I just want to point out that you know every, in your in your Bible sometimes the letter will be in red, and sometimes、uh, the publishers have done that to show you when it's actually the words of Jesus. And so here's Jesus speaking, and he opens his mouth and. You'll notice that even in your Bibles,、um, 
there's a bit of a pattern going on. And what they did was they took the first passage that you see that kind of looks like a poem, and people have coined that phrase, these are the Beatitudes, the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes is a Latin word, um, it comes from a Latin word, beatudo, which means blessedness. But did you know that it actually also means happiness? It can be translated happiness or blessedness. So I'll be reading from the, um, the New International Version, but some other versions of the Bible might say happy, wherever it says blessed. But let's go ahead and read it. It says, And seeing the multitudes, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you, and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When we read these uh, Beatitudes, there's eight blessings, right? Or eight statements of happiness. At first glance, it's very tempting to look at this and say, aha, here are the eight steps to happiness. And in fact, uh, many people have, um, have shared the Beatitudes in such a way. Be poor in spirit. Be uh, mournful, be meek, hunger and thirst for righteousness, be merciful, be pure in heart, be a peacemaker, right? Be faithful, and then you'll be happy. Um, in fact, some people will say, these are the be attitudes, you know? Be these things, and then you will be happy. But that's actually our pursuit of happiness, rearing its greedy head again, wanting um, that to be the focal point of, of our, even our spiritual lives. And so then, um, we come to a passage like this and it's so almost like a nature for us to immediately say, all right, put it down on our check up, check to do list, right? These are things I must do. And the end result is that I will be happy or that I'll be blessed. But I don't know about you, but I can't just be pure in heart or merciful or meek or mournful, or, or poor in spirit by wheeling myself into it. So how, does, how do we understand what Jesus is trying to share here? Was Jesus just giving us another list of things that we must be, um, another list that we must do to a generation who were already oppressed by all the things that they felt pressured to be on the outside? Is that what Jesus is doing? And the truth is, if we actually study this passage uh, the way that it is written, the way that uh, Jesus meant for it to be understood, we'll realize that he has a very different message here than what we might think at first glance. And we can look at that whenever we study the Bible, whenever we look at what Jesus shares, it's so important to look at the context, to look at the literature, to look at the structure, to look at how Jesus crafted his words. And these Beatitudes are crafted very precisely. One of the commentaries were saying that there's exactly 46 words for the first four Beatitudes and 46 words for the, for the second half of the Beatitudes. 
And you might have noticed that there is a pattern. Did anybody see a pattern? Let's see if I can know how to use my pointer. There you go. Notice how the very first one says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for, what does it say? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, where does that come up again? The last one. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, um, in Hebrew literature, um, there's a fancy word called inclusio. And what that basically means is, uh, in Hebrew literature, you could write in such a way that it was a literary device, a style, where you have one statement and another statement that mirror each other. They're like brackets or bookends. And it signaled the reader or the listener, hey, this is one unit. Okay? And so, oops, let me go back here. And so what's going on here is that the very first beatitude and the very uh, last one, the eighth one, these two um, are, are identical, this last phrase. And so it's signaling everyone, hey, this is an inclusio, this is a bracket. Everything inside of this is a unit. And not just a unit, but the way another um, literary device um, that they used was called the chiastic structure. In other words, it's just like an X. And what would happen is that what is inside those brackets, the inclusio, mirror each other. So the very first and the very last um, have similar but um, kind of complementary ideas. And the second, uh, as well the second to last, have a, a complementary idea, et cetera, et cetera, until you get to the middle. And the middle part is actually the climax. And so in this crafted chiastic structure, and there's different um, kind of, you can see different patterns. Not only do you see the re- repetition of that phrase, but you have in the second one, they will be comforted. And in blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. These are future tenses future promises. Um, but when we come to the middle, which is, like I said, the most important, and let me show you the version of the format didn't quite come out right, but it's A, A prime, B, B prime, C, C prime, and D. D is the middle part, and that's the climax. We see here it says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Now these two phrases here, is in what's called a divine passive. A divine passive. In other words, it says, they shall be filled, they shall obtain mercy. Well, who's going to fill them? Who's going to show mercy? God. That's, that's the divine passive. Even though it's not explicitly stated, um, it's, it's like an understatement to make you think about it so that you realize you know, the powerful reality behind it. It was, it was a literary device that was used to actually make a punchline point, but to make it in your head rather than um, out loud so that it would actually be like a light bulb going off. Hey, wait a second. They shall be filled. God's going to fill me. You know, they shall obtain mercy. Oh, God's going to provide the mercy. And so this divine passive is right in the middle as the climax of the Beatitudes. And it's actually the key for unlocking and understanding what the Beatitudes is about. Because you see, at first glance, it looks like, oh man, i got to be pure, i got to be merciful. I, I know I really should. And then you know, there we are back again, trying to be something that of our own we cannot be. But then when we realize that the climax and the point of this whole Beatitudes is that God is going to be doing the filling, God is going to be the one showing mercy, that it's actually God enabling and transforming us to be this, 
it totally changes our understanding of the Beatitudes. And you have to look at the historical context. Jesus is not speaking to uh, all the religious Pharisees who have it all together and who, um, you know, or at least seem to have it all together, right? He's speaking to the people, to the people who feel inadequate, to the people who feel poor in spirit, right? They felt completely sinful. They felt um, like they couldn't make it. They felt in need of a shepherd. They felt their utter um, dependence on someone other than themselves. They were mourning. These people that Jesus was speaking to uh, were mourning um, perhaps the loss of innocence, the loss of loved ones, the loss of justice, the loss of righteousness. And so to these humble individuals who didn't have it all together, who didn't um, have assurance of salvation, Jesus is saying, when you're hungry and thirsting for it, when you're mourning, when you're poor, when you're all these things that might seem like you don't have it all together and that you're a mess, it seems like that, but God is saying, you're blessed, for I am blessing you in that moment. I like this kind of modern um, rendition of the Beatitudes based on what I just stated. Um, An individual named Rob Bell, um, he wrote, Blessed are those who don't have it all together. Blessed are those who have run out of strength, ideas, willpower, resolve, or energy. Blessed are those who ache because of how severely out of whack the world is. Blessed are those who stumble, trip, and fall in the same place again and again. Blessed are those who on a regular basis have a dark day in which despair seems to be a step behind them wherever they go. Blessed are you, for God is with you. God is on your side. God meets you in that place. The gospel is the counterintuitive, joyous, exuberant news that Jesus has brought the unending, limitless, stunning love of God to even us. It's so easy for us to put on masks, as we saw in that uh, opening video not just in the world, but even in the church. It, it feels like wherever we go, um, the values of the world and the values of those around us is not about meekness and brokenness, right? It's all about success and popularity and having it all together and, and um, you know, being able to achieve. And so oftentimes we put on masks so that we feel like we can fit in. And what Jesus is stating through the Beatitudes is actually... It's okay to not be okay. In fact, it's when we realize our brokenness and when we realize our condition as sinners in need of a divine Savior that we can truly be open to receiving the blessings of God that then transform us into the character of God. This is what it says in one of the commentaries I've been reading this week. It says, The Beatitudes are not imperatives or require standards that disciples must perform in order to procure God's approval. If that were the case, they would be much, they would not be much different than the rigorous demands for purity found among the Jewish leaders, and they would lead to the same kind of religious hypocrisy that Jesus condemns. Instead, they provide guidelines for the kind of life that God intends to produce in his disciples. The Beatitudes are a vision of what Christ has in mind for his followers. It's a vision of what is the end result rather than the prescription of what to do in order to get there. This um, portion of the Sermon on the Mount, as well as other portions of the Sermon on the Mount, 
uh, may surprise you to find out that this, this wasn't a new idea. Jesus sharing about the grace of God, Jesus sharing about how God is the one doing the work in our hearts wasn't a new idea. It's just that the people had never quite gotten it or very few people got it. In fact, if you look um, at the Beatitudes, Jesus was quoting scripture. All eight of the Beatitudes are found um, actually in the book of Psalms. Jesus quoted the, the book of Psalms a lot in his lifetime. Even until he died, he quoted my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's from Psalm chapter 22. Um, so Jesus was scripting, uh, quoting scripture all his life. And in his sermon, he was quoting the Psalms. And I won't go through each of these. But if you ever have a chance to sit down and kind of look through, these are direct, a lot of these are direct quotations, if not. Um, and the interesting thing is in the Psalms, instead of saying blessed, it'll say happy sometimes. So when you look at it, it'll sometimes say blessed is the one or happy is the one. But it's actually talking about uh, the same thing. When we look at the Beatitudes, um, we, we, we talked about how Jesus is presenting a vision of what he wants his followers to be. And that vision is very different from what the world is shaping us to be. So if you look at the Beatitudes, for example, the idea of being poor in spirit. What Jesus says, hey, this is something that I value. This is something that I think is, is a, a blessing, right? But... The world does not see poverty of spirit or even poverty in general as a good thing, right? The world says, hey, be self-reliant, be competent, be self-confident, you know? Um, none of this poor in spirit. Whereas Jesus says it's actually a blessing. It's actually a good thing uh, to mourn and to experience other emotions than just happiness. The world, meanwhile, is seeking that pursuit of happiness that is an emotionally based uh, feeling, right? Um, it's a capricious uh, base. And while Jesus talks about the value of meekness that he himself exemplified, the world says it's important to be powerful, right? And to be, you know, macho and to be um, assertive and aggressive. And while Jesus says hungering and thirsting for righteousness um, is a blessing, the world would say, actually, it's better to be well-adjusted you know, don't be extreme. Don't be fanatical. Just, you know, go with the flow. And while Jesus would value mercy, the world says, get even, right? Don't be trampled upon. Don't let them do that to you, right? Get back. While Jesus values purity of heart, the world um, talks about being sophisticated and adult and broad-minded and uh, uh, not being naive. And Jesus values peacemakers, and the world values competitiveness and aggressiveness. And while Jesus values faithfulness, right, being willing to be persecuted for righteousness' sake, the world says, don't rock the boat. Right? Be popular. Be adaptable. And as we look at the distinction between what Jesus values and what the world presents um, as the pursuit of happiness, as the kind of formula for happiness, let's be honest. Which one is more attractive? <laughs> well, I'm glad that for you, that is the one that's uh, more attractive. But sad to say, but to be honest, for many people, this is more attractive. Um, <laughs> there were some young teenagers, um, this is back in 1950s in America, who were listening to a sermon on the Sermon on the Mount. 
And the pastor was presenting the Beatitudes as the ideal for Christianity. And these boys are sitting in the back and they are snickering to themselves saying, I don't want to be poor and mournful and, you know, meek and gentle and persecuted. Who wants to be persecuted, right? So, and, and as they were listening to the sermon, they thought, if this is Christianity, I don't want anything to do with it. Because it's just, who's going to say, yep, sign me up for that, right? And so then they actually left church. Um, and for several years, just, you know, pursued this. One day, um, this young man was drafted into the Vietnam War. And because he was a very intelligent, capable young man, he was drafted into the elite Air Force. And after one um, day in battle, you know, he was on night duty and he was sitting there and all of a sudden it occurred to him that without thought, without guilt, he had gleefully killed hundreds of young men that day. Um, young men that he has no personal grudges against. Right? Young men that he happened to be on the other side of this war with. And all of a sudden, as he kind of thought about how he had killed so many people that day without even a second thought, this is what he wrote. That night, I experienced brokenness. I became poor in spirit as I recognized the depth of my depravity and shuddered as I considered the possibility of my fate before God, if he existed. I mourned at the evil in me and at the evil that so quickly emerged in all of us. For the first time in my young life, I understood that I was not the invincible captain of my ship. I could be killed at any moment. So from that very night, I began to realize that there was indeed a very different way to live. I did not articulate it that night in these words, but meekness, righteousness, mercy, purity, and peacemaking all became so much more clearly preferable than the way that I had been pursuing significance and success. What happened to this young man was that he came to that, the place of brokenness where he realized that in that place where you kind of come to the reality of the fact that you can't control life and not even yourself sometimes. Um, and when we come to that place of brokenness, that's when God can come into our hearts and whisper into us that that's where the blessing begins. And this young man not only began, uh, became a pastor later, but actually wrote the commentary on Matthew and the Beatitudes, that's part of the New International Version um, commentary series, a very uh, prestigious uh, scholarship, actually, that he became a part of, and he shares his personal testimony in this commentary. And he, this is what he writes about the Beatitudes. He says, so it does help tremendously to study the Beatitudes because they reveal the values of the kingdom of heaven. As in any study of scripture, they show us God's ways in distinction from the world's ways and helps us to know the right path. But the wonderful truth behind the study of the Beatitudes and our obedience to their truth as the word of God is that the characteristics of the Beatitudes are ultimately produced by the spirit of God. If you think about your happiest moments, you know, if you think about, you know, when was I truly happy? They weren't moments when we were taking and producing. Usually there are moments when we are receiving, whether it's love from our family and friends, whether it's incredible grace and undeserved forgiveness, whatever it is, usually our happiest moments are when we are receiving. And I want to challenge you this afternoon that 
blessedness or happiness, the kind that lasts, the kind that provides um, security, is, is, a, is when we come to realize that it's actually the gift of the grace of God given to us. That it's not something that we produce or that we take or that we make, but that it's something as we open our hearts to God and say, God, I'm going to take off my masks. Here I am, as I am. And here I am, not as I want to be, but I recognize where I have come to. And as we just lay ourselves open to God and say, God, I want you to change me to be like you. And to recognize that security we have in God's response to us, that he is saying, I'm glad you're in this place because this place is the place of blessedness. And to hear God say, you are blessed and that you have the assurance of my grace for you. And as we rest in that security, God will transform us so that not only can we experience the purity of heart and the mercy and um, the meekness, but that through that process, we will experience that lasting, enduring happiness that truly no one can take away. And so my prayer for all of us is that as we come to accept the gift of God, and as we come to accept that security that God provides, that we will experience the freedom from the pursuit of happiness and instead experience the joy of being in relationship with God.